and John will adjust my levels, make sure I'm okay. Well, good morning. This chair, which side do I want to sit on when I do this? There's no really good side. Okay. Um, we're in for, I don't know if it's a treat or, I hope you like stories, uh, because half of my sermon is a story, and we'll go from there. Um, when we met last time, um, children. children, when we met last time, there were children here. <laughs> uh, and those children can go to children's church. <laughs> That's probably good. The topic uh, for today in Romans is the hedonist. Um, when we met last time, we did an introduction to Romans. And what did we learn about? Um, we learned about, you know, overall the letter and why Paul wrote the letter. We covered uh, the overall theme of Romans, that is, it's the power of God uh, for salvation in Jesus Christ that's effective in meeting the requirements of God uh, for both our salvation as well as for our daily living. And we ended by outlining it, the overall layout in Romans, and where we learned that there's a need uh, for salvation is for everyone. There are no exceptions. And that in the following three weeks, we were going to cover, um, what were we going to cover? Let me find out where I was at. Um, we were going to cover three different perspectives. The, pr- the three perspectives are that the Bears are better than the Packers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the three perspectives, the first one being today, uh, was going to be the hedonist view. This is the person who indulges himself. The judgmentalist, which is the person who compares himself to others. And the legalist, though the one who has to save himself. And we're all, at some point in our lives, or even today in some you know, aspects, we probably fall into this camp, or we, do, we did fall into this camp. And, but today we're only going to cover the first person. Uh, and trying to do this, the, um, I'm trying not to make it so heavy and deep of a discussion. And in the process of doing that, came across the book uh, by Max Licato, uh, The Grip of Grace. Uh, how many here have you read, have read it? Not a lot. I'm not knowing. Wow. Awesome. Not that you didn't read it, but that it's a good book. Um, but you're going to get a treat because that's where the story is pulled from today. Okay. Uh, he does a really good job of a metaphor, you could say a parable, on this very specific topic. And it's a story about five sons, of which the three of them we're talking about right, um, over the next few weeks. So I wanted to take the opportunity just to read the parable that he took in regards to these first three chapters. And it gives you basically a high-level view of these three uh, elements. So with that, I'm gonna, I, I wrote it here, but I'm going to read it from here, and we'll see how this goes. And then I'll have to find myself. And as a grandfather, I'm going to sit down and tell a story, okay? John says I'm too young to be a grandfather. But. <laughs> okay, um, which way do I want to read it? Okay, it's called The Parable of the River. Once there were five sons who lived in a mountain castle with their father. The eldest was an obedient son, but his four younger brothers were rebellious. Their father had warned them of the river, but they had not listened. He had begged them to stay clear of the bank, lest they be swept downstream, but the river's lure was too strong. One, each day, the four rebellious brothers ventured closer and closer until one son dared to reach in and feel the waters. Hold my hand so I won't fall in, he said, and his brothers did. But when he touched the water, the current yanked him and the other three into the rapids and rolled them down the river. Over rocks they bounced, through the channels they soared, on the swells they rode. Their cries for help were lost in the rage of the river. Though they fought to gain their balance, they were powerless against the strength of the current. After hours of struggle, they surrendered 
to the pool of the river. The waters finally dumped them on the bank in a strange land, in a distant country, in a barren place. Savage people dwelt in the land. It was not safe like their home. Cold winds chilled the land. It was not warm like their home. Rugged mountains marked the land. It was not inviting like their home. Although I love rugged mountains. So, um, though they did not know where they were, of one fact they were sure, they were not intended for this place. For a long time, their four young sons lay on the bank, stunned at their fall and not knowing where to turn. After some time, they gathered up courage and re-entered the waters, hoping to walk upstream, but the current was too strong. They attempted to walk along the river's edge, but the terrain was too steep. They considered climbing the mountains, but the peaks were too high. Besides, they didn't know the way. Finally, they built a fire and sat down. We shouldn't have disobeyed our father, they admitted. We are a long way from home. With the passage of time, the sons learned to survive in the strange land. They found nuts for food and killed animals for skins. They determined not to forget their homeland nor abandon hopes of returning. Each day they set about the tasks of finding food and building shelter. Each evening they built a fire and told stories of their father and older brother. All four sons longed to see them again. Then one night, one brother failed to come to the fire. The others found him the next morning in the valley uh, with the savages. He was building a hut of mud and grass. I've grown tired of our talks, he told them. What good does it to remember? Besides, this land isn't so bad. I will build a great house and settle here. But it isn't our home, they objected. No, but it is if you don't think of the real one. But what of father? What of him? He isn't here. He isn't near. Am I to spend forever waiting for his arrival? I'm making new friends. I'm learning new ways. If he comes, he comes, but I'm not holding my breath. And so the other three left their hut-building brother and walked away. They continued to meet around the fire, speaking of home and dreaming of their return. Some days later, a second brother failed to appear at the campfire. The next morning, his siblings found him on a hillside, staring at the hut of his brother. How disgusting, he told them as they approached. Our brother is an utter failure, an insult to our family name. Can you imagine a more despicable deed, building a hut and forgetting our father? What he's doing is wrong, agreed the youngest, but what we did was wrong as well. We disobeyed. We touched the river. We ignored our father's warnings. Well, we may have made a mistake or two, but compared to the sleaze in the hut, we are saints. Father will dismiss our sin and punish him. Come, urged the two brothers. Return to the fire with us. No, I think I'll keep an eye on our brother. Someone needs to keep a record of the wrongs to show father. And so the two returned, leaving one brother building and the other judging. The remaining two sons stayed near the fire, encouraging each other and speaking of home. Then one morning, the youngest son awoke to find he was alone. He searched for his brother and found him near the river, stacking rocks. It's no use, the rock-stacking brother explained as he worked. Father won't come for me. I must go to him. I offended him. I insulted him. I failed him. There is one, only one option. I will build a path back up the river and walk into our Father's presence. Rock upon rock I will stack until I have enough rocks to travel upstream to the castle. When he sees how hard I have worked and how diligent I have been, he will have no choice but to open the door and let me into his house. The last brother did not know what to say. He returned to sit by the fire alone. One morning, he heard a familiar voice behind him. Father has sent me to bring you home. The youngest son lifted his eyes to see the face of his oldest brother. You have come for us, he shouted. For a long time, the two embraced. And your brothers, the eldest finally asked. One has made a home here. Another is watching him. 
and the third is building a path up the river. And so Firstborn set out to find his siblings. He first went to the thatched hut in the valley. Go away, stranger, screamed the brother through the windows. You are not welcome here. I have come to take you home. You have not. You have come to take my mansion. This is no mansion, Firstborn countered. This is a hut. It is a mansion, the finest in the lowlands. I built it with my own hands. Now go away. You cannot have my mansion. Don't you remember the house of your father? I have no father. You were born in a castle in a distant land where the air was warm, is warm, and the fruit is plentiful. You disobeyed your father and ended up in this strange land. I have come to take you home. Their brother peered through the window at firstborn as if recognizing a face he remembered from a dream. But the, brief, but the pause was brief, for suddenly the savages in the house filled the window as well. Go away, intruder, they demanded. This is not your home. You are right, responded the firstborn son, but neither is it his. The eyes of the two brothers met again. Once more, the hut, uh, the hut builder brother felt a tug at his heart, but the savages has won his trust. He just wants your mansion, they cried. Send him away. And so he did. Firstborn sought the next brother. He didn't have to walk far. On the hillside near the hut, within eyesight of the savages, sat the fault-finding son. When he saw firstborn approaching, he shouted, How good is it that you're here to behold the sin of our brother? Are you aware that he turned his back on the castle? Are you aware that he never speaks of home? I knew you would come. I have kept careful account of his deeds. Punish him. I will applaud your anger. He deserves it. Deal with the sins of our brother. Firstborn spoke softly. We need to deal with your sins first. My sins? Yes, you disobeyed father. The sun smirked and slapped at the air. My sins are nothing. There is a sinner, he claimed, pointing to the hut. Let me tell you of the savages who stay there. I'd rather tell him, I'd rather you tell me about yourself. Don't worry about me. Let me show you who needs help, he said, running towards the hut. Come, we'll peek in the windows. He never sees me. Let's go together. The son was at the hut before he noticed the firstborn hadn't followed him. Next, the eldest son walked to the river. There he found the last brother, knee-deep in the water, stacking rocks. Father has sent me to take you home. The brother never looked up. I can't talk now. I must work. Father knows you have fallen, but he will forgive you. He may, the brother interrupted, struggling to keep his balance against the current, but I have to get to the castle first. I must build a pathway up the river. First I will show him that I am worthy. Then I will ask him for mercy. He has already given him mercy. He has already given his mercy. I will carry you up the river. You will never be able to build a pathway. The river is too long. The task is too great for your hands. Father sent me to carry you home. I am stronger. For the first time, the rock-stacking brother looked up. How dare you speak with such irreverence? My father would not simply forgive. I have sinned. I have sinned greatly. He told us to avoid the river, and we disobeyed. I am a great sinner. I need much work. No, my brother, you don't need much work. You need much grace. The distance between you and our father's house is too great. You haven't enough strength nor the stones to build the road. That is why our father sent me. He wants me to carry you home. Are you saying I can't do it? Are you saying I'm not strong enough? Look at my work. Look at my hands or look at my rocks. Already I can walk five steps. But you have five million to go. The younger brother looked at firstborn with anger. I know who you are. You are the voice of evil. You are trying to seduce me from my holy work. Get behind me, you serpent. He hurled at firstborn the rock he was about to place in the river. Heretic, screamed the path builder. Leave this land. You can't stop me. I will build this walkway and stand before my father. 
and he will have to forgive me. I will win his favor. I will earn his mercy. Firstborn shook his head. Favor won is no favor. Mercy earned is no mercy. I implore you, let me carry you up the river. The response was another rock. So firstborn turned and left. The youngest brother was waiting near the fire when firstborn returned. The others didn't come? No, one chose to indulge, the other to judge, and the third to work. None of them chose our father. So they will remain here? The eldest brother nodded slowly, for now. And we will return to father? Asked the brother. Yes. Will he forgive me? Would he have sent me if he wouldn't? And so the younger boy climbed on the back of the firstborn and began the journey home. All four brothers heard the same invitation. Each had an opportunity to carry home to be carried home by the elder brother. The first said no, choosing a grass hut over his father's house. The second said no, preferring to analyze the mistakes of his brother rather than admit his own. The third said no, thinking it's wiser to make a good impression than an honest confession. And the fourth said yes, choosing gratitude over guilt. I'll indulge myself, resolves one son. I'll compare myself, opts another. I'll save myself, determines the third. I'll entrust myself to you, decides the fourth. I thought that was a great way to start dealing with Romans. That's probably better than anything else you hear in the second half of today. So, we'll be, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be reading from Romans 1 18 to 32. And we'll be just tackling uh, this is the firstborn brother, the hut builder. Let me pray before we do that. Father, uh, this is a uh, challenging topic. How do you talk about the lostness of man? Um, How do you talk about these three? Um, There's a lot of meat in these passages, uh, and I I fear um, giving it not enough uh, due diligence to it, not enough justice in trying to explain uh, the depth that Paul... Um, has here. Um, As we go into this, um, uh, may our eyes be uh, open to hear what you have to say to us. Um, We can all fall into each of these brothers in the way that we interact on our day-to-day, whether before coming to faith or even falling back into those patterns after coming to faith. Uh, So let us take it to heart. Uh, what it has to say here. Um, and may the, through the understanding of the parable of these brothers, then we, we come away with a greater sense of uh, what it is uh, to rest in you uh, instead of uh, doing it on our own. Uh, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans 1, 18 to 32. Not too long. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality for the degrading of their bodies with one another 
they exchanged the truth uh, about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, they did not, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's a lot to take in. So that's, the, that's what we have to tackle this morning. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, throughout the entire section, uh, Paul has this legal style of argument as he goes through here. And there's a series of statements that really build upon each other. So kind of follow me here. Verse 16 starts, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the righteousness of God that's being revealed. And then it goes on. For the wrath of God then is also being revealed. Why? For that which is known about God is evident. Okay? So how is it evident? Since the creation of the world. For although they knew God, and then 21, for even though they knew God, so they got the creation, they knew God through the creation, things happen. They, what do they do? They basically are truth suppressors. They, so God, therefore, gives them over. Why? They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26. Because of that, what happens? Uh, well, for this reason, what reason? Truth suppression. God gives them over again uh, to degrading passions. And then God gives them over again to a degrading mind. And there's, it's just a sequence of the things that happen. But we're going to break them down one by one to make a little bit more sense. We're going to start all the way at verse 18. What is the wrath of God? That's first talked about. When we think of uh, wrath, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Anybody? Anger. Okay. Um, for me, that was the first thing I wrote. It's an act of anger, of vengeance, crazy, uncontrolled expression of harm to come onto someone. This week is Halloween. The movies are out kind of sum up kind of that kind of thing. Um, it was weird. Um, my mom went to see Halloween. I can't picture that. Um, it was when I was younger, not now. Um, but the reason why I remember it was because she drove off the side of the road afterwards because she thought... The guy was going after her or something. Um, so, yeah, she was in a ditch. Um, but that is man's concept of wrath. That is not God's concept of wrath. That is revenge, and we see a lot of that in the world today. God's wrath is really twofold. The first part of God's wrath is going to be exhibited at the end of times, at the end of the world, at the end of days. Um, but that's not the context for uh, this passage. This particular form of wrath is present day. As it says, it's being revealed, so that means that there's something immediate about it. There's something that we should see in our day-to-day world, and upon seeing it, it's evident that God is working in the world today. God's wrath, or God's justice that's being executed against mankind here is essentially God allowing us to go our own way because Basically, we have told God to talk to the hand. He's that first person, in the, that first son in the story that we read. We have told God that we do not want him involved in our lives and that we'd rather pursue our own pleasures instead of pursuing righteousness. We'd rather pursue our own interests instead of what God wants for our lives. 
as Fleetwood Mac points out, you can go your own way. You can call it another lonely day. You can go your own way, right? Okay. Uh, I'm not going to sing for you, though. No, that would be terrible. Um, but I would say it would be a lonely day without God. Now, here's the thing. What is the wrath that's being revealed against? It's against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth about God. It's interesting that both of these terms are used, godlessness and wickedness. Godlessness refers to our vertical relationship, and wickedness refers to our horizontal relationship. It's our horizontal relationship with God's creation, with one another, that is the people God in his holiness can't just sit back and allow both godlessness and wickedness to go unpunished. He cannot sit back and just allow truth, truth about him, to be suppressed. Because if he did, how does he have the right to judge the world in the matters of sin and unrighteousness? Ultimately, though, God in his love and mercy, he addresses this already. He addresses this through the cross. However, still being revealed today. In the here and now, because man chose godlessness and wickedness. So we need to understand more about that. Well, let's understand what is the truth that is known about God for these people, which is us, which is the first person in the story. What truth about him is being suppressed? It's basically, really, the natural revelation of God described as his eternal power and divine nature. Without knowing anything about God through the incarnation of Jesus Christ and through the scripture, God's glory is still on display for everyone, not only to see, but to understand. It is made plain to them. Each and every one of us have this hole inside us since the fall of creation that only God can fill. God, through natural revelation, displays himself to us. Through his power in creating all that we see, all that we hear, all that we touch, all that we taste, his majesty is on display. And that display drives us to understand that it requires something greater than ourselves, something greater than ourselves to accomplish that. It's made plain to us through it. Scripture says that. Um, through it, we understand what? We understand that God exists. Through it, we gain knowledge about God. Through it, we understand some of the fundamental truths there are about God. This is not saving knowledge, as that comes through the special revelation through Jesus Christ, but it's knowledge enough for us to reject the truth about God. We intentionally reject the truth that has been made evident to us. And how is that made evident? The answer is clear. It says it right there. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Let me read that again. Let me read that again. Oh, I, have it, hey, I said that a little farther down. Let me just continue. The, if, you have, if you're using the NAV translation... It doesn't show this point as clearly, the them and the two. Uh, If you go to the New American Standard, you'll you'll see it. There's a key point there that I think we need to understand. Those are the words within them and to them. So let me read that again. That which is known about God is made evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Wrath is occurring because man willfully rejects God because what can be known about him is both in them and shown to them. And let's break it down between those two. For known within them, you have to go all the way back to Genesis. God made man in his own image. Man has truth in himself because he's made in the image of God. He has intellect, he has will, he has emotion. God gave us the capacity to learn and understand truth. We have God's imprint on us, and we know it. We are distinct from the animal world. We are created to rule over creation and to worship God. It is through this that we can understand that there even is a God. 
So how are we known to them? How is it known to us? Since the beginning of time, God's creation exhibits God's invisible qualities. That is, his eternal power and his divine nature. These two things are clearly shown to us because of the first, because we have the capacity to understand it, because we're made in his image and made by someone far greater than, than we could be. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. It is God's handiwork, and not that it matters, as we all know the truth anyway, but many of the key scientists in, in our day and in previous days uh, that made all these scientific discoveries, they knew this same point. I've always been a science buff growing up. Maybe it's because my parents named me after an astronaut, David Scott. So that's cool. Yeah. I'm closer to God because I was an astronaut. All right. <laughs> Um, I used to watch on uh, TV, I don't remember what show it was, it was on WTTW, um, they had all my science heroes. Um, people, my favorite was Johann Kepler. Um, he was a German astronomer, and he reasoned that the universe was designed by an intelligent creator. Uh, and that, because of that, it should function according to logical patterns. To him, the idea of a chaotic universe was inconsistent with God's wisdom. Kepler's faith led him to a way of thinking that eventually enabled him to solve the equations for the laws of planetary motion. He's, he's my hero. Um, I think I learned those equations before I ever had physics class. That's awesome. Um, anyway, so you can feel my excitement on science. Uh, how about Samuel Morse? What did he make? Morse code. Telegraph Morse code. He endured uh, ridicule for many years. Uh, his ideas were rejected. He was penniless, he was hungry, he, but he never stopped trusting God because he believed God's hand was on his life. Other people, uh, authors of or, or, uh, the faith that were scientists, Newton, Faraday, Pasteur, and so on. I love astronomy. I follow the Voyager spacecraft since it was launched 40 years ago. And many of the other spacecrafts, Cassini that went to Saturn, uh, New Horizons that went to Pluto, the kids' names are on the spacecraft that went to the comet and came back. Um, so I've done all that kind of stuff. The Pluto one's heading to a, a Kuiper Belt object called MU69. Um, it's going to be there on New Year's Day, so that's what I'm doing on New Year's Day and Eve. It's going to watch that feed, okay? Uh, I, I, I am a freak when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, I will, um, uh, I am on their websites every day, um, looking for the latest thing, latest news. Yeah. So I was more than pleasantly surprised on my way back from my management meeting this week. I, we had a, a work management meeting in Georgia. Uh, we flew out in Knoxville and it was a long week and I'm sitting there just chilling and trying to relax and I'm hearing this conversation behind me and as I'm there I'm like ooh this is cool so I'm spying on the conversation behind me because they're talking about occultations of stars and and uh, I'm like the only occultations I know are the ones they did recently to uh, track their way from Pluto to this Kuiper belt object I'm like oh this is neat and they continue talking and talking and eventually I turn around because I'm just curious and I ask, are you part of the New Horizons, you know, program? You know, the one going that went to Pluto? And she says her name is Kathy Olkin and she is one of the main people on the project team for the Pluto mission. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> Little girl at a rock concert, I'm throwing things, you know. Um... And uh, just so excited that I couldn't even ask any questions about it. I'm like, I'm just so awesome to be in your presence. I'm honored to meet you. 
Um, I felt pretty bad because I couldn't really ask her much because my mind was just <laughs> speechless. Um, but what it would have been if I would be able to talk with her more on that trip, and if I was next to her, maybe I could have, but just about, um, you know, not only the science aspect, but in light of this conversation of this is God's glory on display and, you know, I don't know where she's at, you know, in regards to that. You know, a lot of these scientists today are, eh, you know, you don't know where they fall. Um, but it would have been great to be able to just give her that little nugget and saying, God's glory on display kind of thing. Um, so anyway, uh, I got to greet her and uh, um, look up. She, was, she did what I could never do. I remember growing up thinking, I want to be at JPL. I want to work on these spacecraft but it requires a PhD in physics, and I'm not, I don't want to put in the effort. <laughs> um, but she did, so I, it was fun. Anyway, uh, but it just goes towards this, the whole thing of we're able to do these things because there's order, um, and God is a God of order. Now, those that, getting back to the whole line of thinking, this truth, and those that suppress the truth, they have this principle of wrath, uh, work at work within them. They knew God, but they didn't honor him and they didn't give him thanks. If you're in a courtroom and you would have a hard time standing in front of the judge after it was exposed that you not only knew the truth, but you rejected it. Um, so people are not lost because they reject Christ. They're lost because they reject the witness of God's presence. They reject his power in a world that proclaims his glory. They flat out suppress the truth about God. Now, how do they suppress that? Verses 20 to 23, we see a cause and effect relationship between man's sinfulness and God's requirement for justice. And it all starts with true suppression. The truth about God is made abundantly clear, but they chose to ignore it. Not only ignore it, uh, but to out, uh, outright reject him and outright reject the truth. And that's why you see wrath in the world today. In Paul's dissertation here, the lostness of man is not something that comes about by accident or because they just haven't found the truth yet. It's a willful act of disobedience. How about this? I want to make a different way of looking at it. What are things that you suppress? I have a broken water pipe. What's my first reaction? I'm going to suppress that water by instinctively grabbing on it, you know, until I figure out what to do next, like turn off the water. Or how about voter suppression? One political party uh, accusing another party of being malicious and trying to prevent them from um, uh, winning. Or how about probably one that I'm good at, suppressing my emotions, stuffing it down so that no one can see or ask about what's going on. All of these are willful acts. And the same goes for man. He is willfully suppressing the truth about God, and the results of that, at God acting out of justice, is displaying his wrath, or more accurately, revealing his wrath. And his wrath is revealed through a cycle, starting with the suppression of truth and cascading through a process that ultimately impacts the entire man. Step one in that cycle is the truth is ignored. Man knows that God exists, but he doesn't give God the glory, and he doesn't thank God for what was provided. Step two in that cycle is that their thinking becomes futile, and their hearts are darkened. What is futile thinking? It's pointless thinking. Incapable of producing any result, or any useful result. That is futile thinking. When you know that God exists, as made evident by his creation and by being made in his image, it is pointless to say that he doesn't. Instead, man sets up the created to be worshipped instead of the creator. Man is making that direct swap. He exchanges one for the other, and he knows what he's doing. It's like me saying, I never had parents, and this microphone is my mom and dad. You look at me like I'm crazy which I am. The longer and longer you deny the truth and indulge in your own ways, the more and more futile your thinking will become 
until more and more it makes it more difficult to hear from God. Eventually your heart becomes darkened, incapable of seeing the truth because that's being suppressed for so long. And that's what the hedonist does. He indulges himself by satisfying his passions. He's really becoming what he really is without God. That becomes his purpose, and what he becomes is evidence of God's active moral governance at work. God gives them over to what they really are. And that's what we see as the cycle continues. Let's take a look at how his wrath is being revealed. And you see it three times here. Verse 24, 26, and 28 says God gave them over. The first, therefore, is that he gave them over to worship the created instead of the creator. Let's read that one more time. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. As a reminder, Paul, if we talked about, he's in Corinth, right? Uh, That's where he penned the letter. And there was a lot of godless worship going on at the time there. It would have been all in display. Corinth is the home of the Temple of Aphrodite. The main festival, which you'll be familiar with kind of the name, is called Aphrodisia and was the patron goddess of prostitutes. A common theme among pagan worship was related to agricultural fertility, so you want good crops. Uh, And as a result, pagan worship was filled with sexual impurity. It's important to note again here that a conscious decision was required. They exchanged the truth for something else. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped the created instead of the creator. And as a result, what happens when you do that? There's no moral absolutes anymore. You can make them to be whatever you want. In the first phase of God's wrath, you see the spiritual nature of man impacted. No longer does he recognize God as the source of life but instead, in his futile thinking, he devotes himself to himself, to man's own way. The first thing I thought of was uh, Moses at uh, Mount Sinai and the Israelites where they quickly abandoned him and they uh, needed to worship something. So what did they do? They made the golden calf um, and they worshiped that. We all know that story. Today, we don't outright create idols to worship. Uh, we're too educated for that but we're really doing the same thing. Humanism plays a key role in it. Going to the authoritative source, or sources, Webster and Wikipedia, on the definition of humanism, they say humanism is a doctrine, attitude, or way of life centered on human interest, a philosophy that usually rejects the supernatural, attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or spiritual matters. In the context of idol worship, I heard on the radio of a festival uh, called Burning Man, uh, which encapsulates this concept of humanism. There's a picture of the festival. It focuses on self-expression. Are are you not? Press F5. (laughs) Oh, you're up there. And then the arrow keys. Up, down. There you go. There you go. We'll go back up one. There you go. There you go. Just put a golden calf there instead. You get the idea. It's really a worship of man. Worship of man exchanged for the worship of God. What they do is at the very end of their festival, they burn the man. And they all go there to do this. Um, So the wrath of God has been revealed in how man replaces the spiritual act of who we are. Man replaced the spiritual act of worshiping God and exchanged it for worshiping man himself, the created. And because of that, God gives them over again. What did he give them over to? God gave them over to their shameful lusts. In the previous section, the spiritual is fallen. In this section, the physical falls. Let's read it again. Because of this, God gave them over their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations for women and were inflamed with lust for one another. 
men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Here, God gives them over to immorality. The sin against God nature in the previous section follows up with the sin against man's physical nature. You don't have the guiding principle of righteousness, and the net result is that the output of the exchange you made in the previous section, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, necessitates a similar exchange in the physical, the exchange of natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Once again, the point here is it's intentional, it's conscious. They exchange, it has intent. If I follow the previous exchange on man's worship, the Burning Man Festival, God's wrath of the physical is also in full display there. At the festival, you are free to do as you wish, with no penalty from man's perspective. You have full license to indulge in drugs and immorality of any kind. This is God's wrath being displayed in the physical. So the wrath of God's being revealed in the spirit, it's being revealed in how man abuses the body, and now the wrath of God is being revealed in how man is impacted in the mind. Let's read that again in verse 28, because he gives them over again. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved uh, mind so they uh, do what ought not to be done. And then there's a whole list of it. Suppressing the truth about God ultimately uh, leads to a depraved mind. A depraved mind leads to man's doing acts against others that are wrong, that are sinful. The list here is an interesting list. It's not exhaustive, but it, it is one thing. It's evident of God's wrath against truth suppression. When we look at the world around us, we see all of those things that are listed there in that paragraph or sentences. They are signs of God's wrath being revealed. And we should not be surprised. They can be hard to explain to those that do not understand, but it is a reality that we are living in. They are the result of man's rejection of the truth about God. So the next time you watch the news, you hear things on the radio, you've seen the thing with the shootings and all that kind of stuff, this is the result of that, or that is the result of the truth suppression. And lastly, these same people, they approve of others doing the same. Although they knew God's righteous decree that, they, that those who do such things deserve death, so we know the truth, I should die for what I did, they not only continued to do that, but they also approve of those who practice it. That's the icing on the cake. Man has not lacked sufficient knowledge about God and his righteousness, uh, which should have led them to worshiping God, but they reject him and his worship. And uh, In addition, this knowledge that they have, it should have led them to know that that disobedience required death, or required a penalty to be paid, and that penalty is death. But what do we find instead? They not only continue to do it, but they also approve of others that do it. It's not even a false, this is wrong, and you shouldn't do this, and I'm guilty of it, but I'm going to say you shouldn't do it. No. The hedonist knows it's wrong and approves of others doing it. And now we find this truth about truth suppression. The spirit, the body, the mind, they're all affected. It's a pitiful state where we're at right now in the sermon, isn't it? So where do we go from here? Application. We still have to look at the other two people, the judgmentalist and the legalist, the son number two and the son number three. But I don't want to leave you without some hope. And that hope is Jesus Christ. The natural revelation can only point to the knowledge that God exists and should be worshipped. But through the saving power of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection of the cross, we can be redeemed from it. And not only redeemed, but redeemed through and through from the inside out. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. And it will be in verse 23. It reads, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. 
What man has corrupted through and through can be sanctified through and through. God is both active in the revealing of wrath today, but it's even more active in its willingness and in willingness to redeem the whole person. And he wants to do that through us, through the church. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you for the parable. I thank you for your creation, which points to you. You just didn't leave us alone. You didn't leave us to figure it out, but you have shown your glory to us, and we rejected it. You knew that, and in your grace and your mercy, you sent your Son to die for us on our behalf so that your justice could still be preserved. Uh, Your righteousness could still be given. And we are the recipients of that um, because we who follow or who have bowed our knee to Jesus, um, you have given us life. And life to the fullest. Now we may still, I know, fall into this first son described. Um, And we fall into the second and the third as well. Um, And we get to Romans 6, 7, 8, and we deal with all that kind of stuff. Um, But we know that what you did at the cross is sufficient. Um, And that if we submit to you, um, you will work in our lives to accomplish that. Um, So I thank you uh, for what you've done. I thank you that you are working among us and in us through and through. I pray that we leave here uh, with a better understanding of the world around us, um, of those who don't know you, and that we would be able to be people of mercy uh, and grace as we engage the world around us because we know where they're at. We know we've been redeemed from it. uh, And may we be able to lead others to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.